Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I am hoping to leave a few minutes for questions at the end. So as we're going along, if you think of questions, jot them down, keep them in mind. But I'm not going to promise you that there will be time at the end. We'll find out. We'll find out if there is. But that's my intention at least. Today's focus starts us here in Genesis 28. We are focusing on verse 16 and let me read it for you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. If you know this story, you know that Jacob, when he said these words, was not in a good place. He was in a very bad place. (laughs) Jacob, the deceiver, had tricked his brother Esau two times, stolen his birthright and his blessing, and now his brother wanted to kill him. Jacob was helped by his mother in deceiving his brother. So this is what we can call, very mildly, a dysfunctional family. And some of you are from dysfunctional families in various ways, and you can understand where Jacob's coming from. He's running away from home because his brother would kill him if he didn't. Don't know if you've ever been in that circumstance. It's not a good one, I'm sure. So he is on the run, leaving his hometown, leaving everyone he knows to go to relatives far away. Dysfunctional family. It is a consequence of his own personal sin in tricking his brother with his mom's help. Maybe you are in a place right now that is not good because of your own bad decisions. Then you're like Jacob. He's experiencing conflict. Maybe that's you right now with other people. He's on the run. He's in a very uncomfortable place. He's actually so uncomfortable that Genesis 28 verse 11 says that he took one of the stones there in the desert where he's running. It becomes night. He takes a rock. He puts it under his head and he lays down to sleep. I guess I don't know about running through the desert. I feel like the sand would be softer than a rock, but I guess not. So he takes a rock. It's under his head. He's going to sleep. Needless to say, This is a bad situation. This is not glamorous. This is not Hollywood. This is real life. It's glamorous maybe to read about it because we know what God does in it, but you have to remember that for Jacob, it was not glamorous to live it in that moment. He didn't know how things turn out, just like you don't know how your life's going to turn out. You're just going to sleep on a rock in the desert with conflict, dysfunctional family, personal sin, and its consequences. It's not a very fun thing. This is a lot like maybe not a Sunday morning where we step away and it is glamorous and we think of the glories of God, but this is a lot like a Wednesday, which that's this class, God and Wednesday, because what we want to focus on in this class is not just Sunday morning where we put on our very Sunday best and focus on God, but God is the ruler not just of Sundays, but Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and so forth. Wednesday, midweek, you're at work, you're watching kids, you're in traffic, whatever it is, that's your life and God rules over that as well. And what we want to see in this class is as unglamorous as Wednesday will be for you, God is there. 
Notice here with Jacob, very unglamorous situation, not Sunday morning worship, but Wednesday afternoon misery. And it says, starting in verse 12, he lays on that rock and he dreams and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you to this land because I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. And it's even more glorious than that because Jesus in the New Testament, when speaking to Nathaniel, equates himself with the latter. He says, you'll see angels ascending and descending on me, the portal to heaven, Jesus. But I want you to remember, as glorious as that is, just a little bit before that glorious vision, it was just Jacob running from a dysfunctional family, probably without much of a sense of the nearness of God, suffering the consequences of his own sin and laying on a rock. <laughs> That's why in verse 16, he says, says he awoke from his sleep and this is what he says. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Jacob knew that his brother wanted to kill him. Jacob knew that the rock under his head was rather uncomfortable. Jacob knew that he had done wrong and was suffering the consequences of the wrong. Jacob knew he wasn't in his comfortable home. He was in the desert going who knows where. Jacob was aware of all those things. He doesn't say, I didn't know that. You on Wednesday are aware of your dysfunctional family. You are aware of conflict with the in-laws. You are aware of your own personal failings. You are aware that you spent too much time on your phone last night. You are aware of all of these things and they're very unpleasant. They're very unglamorous. Those things you're aware of. But there was one thing that Jacob was not aware of, but it was just as true as everything else. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. This story and what he says there summarizes the point of this entire class for the next 13 weeks, 12 weeks. We are going to be focusing on the Lord who is there because on Wednesday, it's so easy to be aware of everything else happening in our life. But you know, it's very difficult to remember, oh, the Lord is in this place. <laughs> But just as in Jacob's story, God's intention in revealing himself to you is not so that you can forget him all week and come on Sunday, enjoy him, forget, and go back to your regular life. Listen, God's presence in your life, his power displayed, beholding his glory, is your regular life as a Christian. That is the joy of the Christian life. And if you're only experiencing that Sunday morning, then you're one-seventh of a Christian. You're only enjoying or taking part of one-seventh of everything God offers to you, which is to know God, to know He's present, to know Him in His power, His glory, His perfections, and His beauties on Wednesday, not just on Sunday. Jacob, when he woke up, he named that place Bethel, which means the house of God. It wasn't a Bethel 
before he named it that, because before he was aware God was there, <laughs> I don't know what it was a house of, but it wasn't a house of God to him. But God was, in fact, there. Your cubicle at work, the call center you're at, or whatever you're doing, your office, God is there. On Wednesday, in your kitchen, where your young children have just come in and made yet another massive mess that now you need to clean up, well, the mess is there. That's true. You know what else is there? God is there. In all his glory, in all his fullness, he's present there. Your classroom with the upcoming final that you're worried about, God is there. It's not just professor and students and PowerPoint notes. God is there. An awareness of God, who he is, God as he is, being aware of that, I promise it will change your life on Wednesday. And that is the purpose of this class. So what we're going to be doing for the next so many weeks is each week we're going to take one attribute of God. And if you want to know what that is, we're about to talk about it. But it's one thing true about God. We're going to focus on it as God's revealed it to us in his word, trying to understand who he is. But then the second part of each class is going to be taking that attribute once we understand it and then applying it to one specific struggle area that's common in life. You struggle with anxiety on Wednesday? Are you afraid about the future on Wednesday? Are you struggling with conflict with other people on Wednesday? Are you worried about your children? Are you blowing up in anger? Are you struggling with bitterness? Are you clamming up? Is that happening to you on Wednesday? God wants you to become aware of him in a way that purges that out. But it won't happen unless you're aware that God's there on Wednesday. <laughs> So that is the whole goal of this class, and that's all we'll be doing for the upcoming weeks. Today is preparatory. I want to prepare you for this class by talking about those two things more generally. <coughs> Excuse me. Number one, we're going to be looking at the attributes of God, so we need to understand what an attribute of God is. And then number two, your attitudes. That's what the attributes of God are to change. Your life, your behavior, your attitudes. I mean, I put attitudes also because it sounds like attributes, but you can call it whatever you want. It changes you, okay? So you can think attributes, attitudes. God's attributes, your attitudes. And every class will be God's, some attribute of his, and then your anxiety, anger, so forth. So let's step back and just begin where we need to begin, which is... What are we talking about when we have a class on the quote-unquote attributes of God? To some of you, a term like attributes of God gets us into the realm of academic theological discussion that's kind of detached from the rest of life. Maybe you're thinking as you hear words like that, oh, that's not really my personality, that's not who I am, I'm just going to kind of shut off for a little bit till we get to the practical. I beg you, don't do that. I want to explain what an attribute of God is, and hopefully in a way that helps you, you yourself, understand this is a massive part of your life, understanding the attributes of God. Let me start, however, by giving you a uh, respected theologian's definition of an attribute, and then we'll simplify it, okay? Here's John Frame. He's a Presbyterian, teaches at Westminster. He was Wayne Grudem's teacher, you know, so a lot of you know Wayne Grudem. Frame was his teacher. In his systematic theology, he says, quote, 
an attribute is a concept, an idea, expressed by, <laughs> we'll simplify it, okay? But he says, expressed by an adjective, remember those? Descriptive word, such as eternal, God is eternal, or a noun, such as eternity, used to describe a person or a thing. And in this case, it would be used to describe God. So if we're just going to make it as simple as possible, don't be scared by attribute. This is what an attribute of God is. An attribute of God is something true about God. That's not scary, right? It's something true about God. So why use a big word? I don't know. We're just going to use it, okay? But that's what it is. When you hear the attributes of God, don't be intimidated. All we're saying is we come to the Bible and we're trying to understand what's true about God. An attribute's a helpful word we use for any fact about God. If it's true, this is an attribute of God. So don't think of them as academic, far off. Here is Wayne Grudem, John Frame's student. More of you know of Wayne Grudem. In his systematic theology, he says this. When we come to talk about the character of God, who is God and what is he like, we realize that we cannot say everything the Bible teaches us about God's character at once. Do you realize that? You are finite. That means you are limited. You cannot express or even think about all that God is at one time. Utterly impossible. We can't do that about any subject, much less God. So how are we going to think about God if we can't think of all of him at one time? We're going to think about attributes one at a time because an attribute is something that's true about God but the reality is on our end this is a fault in us not in God but on our end because we're limited we have to study the attributes of God and we have to do them one at a time because we're limited and can't think everything but you have to keep in mind the attributes are not some abstract concept out there it's just us trying to understand God, doing it by looking at this angle, by looking at this angle, by looking at this angle, by looking at this angle. And we can't be at all angles at the same time. So that's why we study the attributes of God. Let me ask you this. I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Are you philosophically a medieval realist? You've been asked that? Probably not. This is why I ask it. The medieval realists, and you can forget that term, but they were a school of thought in medieval times in the church, and they believed that, oh, okay, if we're looking at God over here, looking over here, this must mean that God is this great being, this essence, and he's got one part love, he's got one part righteousness, this part over here is his wrath. This part is his holiness. This part is his goodness. And when you add all those parts together, then you get God. Please don't be a medieval realist. They were very, very wrong. Again, don't think of the attributes of God as being parts of God, some concepts that we just clump together and that's God. That's not what we're talking about. There's actually a attribute of God that we're not going to talk about in this class except right here, and it is called the simplicity of God. 
This does not mean that God is like, oh, so simple. We don't need a class. It does not mean that. We mean simplicity in the sense of not made up of parts. If something has a lot of parts, it's very complex. If there's just one part, then it's simple. And in that sense, God is simple. And it matters that you keep that in mind anytime we talk about the attributes of God so you don't become a medieval realist. So you don't end up thinking that each of the attributes we talk about in this class is just taking one part of God. Here is his love. Let's talk about that. Here is his justice. And if you added them together, that's God. That is not true. A better metaphor, still a metaphor, but a better metaphor is what I said before. This is all of God. He is all love. He is all justice. He is all righteousness. He is all goodness. You're not going to find a part of God and, oh, justice, but no love here. It doesn't work like that. He is all his attributes absolutely and completely. The limitation is in us that we can't see them all at the same time or think about them at the same time. So what we have to do is step over here and focus on his love and then step over here and focus on his righteousness. But I don't want you to think that we're taking different parts of God as if he can be separated out. We are looking at one God who is simple and united in his being. It's because we're limited that we can do a class like this and focus on one attribute at a time. They don't divide out. Here is uh, John MacArthur has biblical doctrine, which is his systematic theology. And he writes in there, quote, God's essence is identical to his perfections. And the word perfections here means attributes, okay? So what he's saying is God's essence, who God is, is exactly the same as his attributes. That's all we're talking about. They're not different. It's the same. He says, there is no essential distinction between God's essence and his attributes. There's no essential difference between his attributes, his perfections, to one another. Love, they're not different. They're together. Each perfection or attribute characterizes God's complete essence simply and eternally. That is to say, God is what he has. God is what he has. If God has love as an attribute, we're just saying that's what God is. He doesn't merely possess love, justice, and goodness. He is love and justice, eternally, fully, completely. God is eternally all-powerful, all-holy, and all-loving. Why am I hammering on this point? Because I want you to be convinced that doing a study on the attributes of God is not some high theology that only academic Christians partake of. All we're talking about is what do you think about God? That's it. And if you can't tell me who God is with one amazing utterance that encapsulates the entirety of his being, then you, just like me and everybody else, are stuck having to talk about attributes, one angle on who God is at a time. But we have to keep in mind, these aren't parts, they're not separable. This is just us talking about God. Do you want to know, in reality, who God is? Then you want to study the attributes of God. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, the famous passage where the prophet tells Israel, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. If you're going to obey that, let's know the Lord. 
then you have to study the attributes of God, whether you call it that or not. He even gives one. His going out is sure. That's God's faithfulness. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, if you're going to obey this command, it will at least require a study of the attributes of God. Here it is. Thus says the Lord, you wise? Are you wise? Don't boast about it. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Are you mighty? Strong? Don't brag about that. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Are you rich? You got a lot of money? Don't brag about that. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. What are we going to brag in? Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord, and what follows? Attributes of God, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're going to obey passages like this that call on you to know God, and we'll see that that knowing is more than just in your mind, but it's not apart from that. If you're going to obey passages like this, you're going to study the attributes of God. Call it whatever you want, but that's what you're doing. And that's why that's what we're doing in this class. So what we're doing in this class is not a study on the attributes of God. What we're doing in this class is the study of your life. This is what your life is primarily about. More than your career, more than your family, more than anything else that's true about you. If you've been called to Christ, even if you haven't, God created you to know him. And that includes knowing who he is. And that is a study of his attributes. I need to give you just one uh, warning before we move on from what an attribute is. The warning is this. Anytime we study the attributes of God, we're in grave, grave danger. The danger is that we might come to think, once we've studied God's love and looked at the relevant passages of Scripture and we know the appropriate theological terms and we've meditated on it, okay, once we've got that data down, you may come away with the feeling of, now I know the love of God. <laughs> no, actually, you don't. You do and you don't. The warning is that you have to bear in mind in any study of God's attributes that while you will be learning true things about God, you will never learn one exhaustive truth about God. I don't mean exhaustive like, ooh, that's tiring, <laughs> although it can be that. I mean exhaustive in the sense of when you study the love of God, if you've looked at every passage, if you've spent 60 years as a professor at a seminary focused on that love of God, then at the end of that time, you've made a good beginning. <laughs> Anything you come to learn about God, because he's God, because we're limited and he is not, because of his grandeur and his glory, anything that you learn about God, you have not learned it exhaustively. But you have learned it truly. Okay? You learn something true, just not exhaustively. It reminds me of Job in chapter 26 where he says, after talking about the greatness of God, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? I love that verse. So after these 13 weeks, you're going to come away with a truer understanding of who God is. It's going to change your life. But you have to remember, you know, this is preschool. <laughs> you spend your whole life going on 
each attribute of God, trying better to understand and apply them. Theologians speak of this, for example, with this phrase, God has many names, yet God has no name. And what they mean is God's revealed to us many true things about himself, many names. At the same time, we'll never fully understand any of them, so we can think of God as having no name. God has many names, yet God has no name. All right. You ready to study the attributes of God? You want to know who God is? Good. So let's move then. That's the attributes of God. The last thing we need to talk about before we're ready for this class is those are God's attributes, your attitudes. How do those apply to your life on Wednesday? What does it mean for Wednesday? I've been focusing on the fact that you have to learn true data about God. Don't make it up. Don't just listen to a televangelist. Don't pull it out of your ear. Go to the Bible. Learn true data about who God is. But that is just the beginning. God never, ever intended for you simply to know data about who he is. He always intended that for a purpose. That's why scripture says, oh, you believe in God. Even the demons believe in shudder. Demons and the devil knows more about God than you do or probably ever will in this life. And yet, has that been useful for the devil to know about God? Not whatsoever. Similarly, you can learn all the data about God and be not helped at all. That's why we're doing a class like this, to make sure that's not happening in your life. Here's John Wesley. He says, quote, orthodoxy or right opinion, the data, is at best a very slender part of religion. In our case, if you come through the scriptures to have an accurate understanding of an attribute of God, you've come this far, but there's this far to go. You can think of it like this, and I'm borrowing this metaphor, I think, from John Piper. I say I think because I feel like I came up with this metaphor, and then I read it in John Piper. So maybe he stole it from me, I don't know. But anyways, I love it. And it's this, when it comes to our understanding of scripture or theology or God, that understanding is intended by God to be firewood. So you go out, you chop the firewood, you gather it, or you go to the gas station, you buy a bundle of it, and you stick it in your shed. So when the winter comes, you're going to use it. Now, if you went out and you spent hours and hours and sweat and sweat and sweat, chopping, chopping, chopping firewood, preparing it, cutting it, cut the tree, cut the wood, which I've done, and it's not easy. <laughs> you know, I'm small, so it's very, very hard. But you do that, it's a lot of work. You've got the firewood now. Imagine if you put it in your shed every winter, but you don't have any way to burn it. So after winter, you just take it out and you throw it away. And then next winter, you spend day after day chopping, 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 chopping firewood, get it in your shed. You gotta move stuff out of there, get all that wood in there, but you don't have a way to burn it. So you just throw it away, turn on your gas heating, throw it away. That would be an utter waste of your time. Why do you chop firewood? Not for its own sake. It's useless by itself. You chop the firewood, you put in the hard work of chopping it so that when it gets cold, you light it on fire. And it's really the fire that produces for you the warmth, the heat, the light, the things that you need. So your goal in chopping the firewood is not to have chopped firewood. It is a, that's a secondary goal. And your primary goal is it's going to get cold and I need to stay warm. This is just the same when we come to study the attributes of God. 
You have to chop the firewood. If you don't, there's nothing to burn. So you have to do the hard work that we'll do the first part of every class of knowing from Scripture the data about who God is. What does it mean when we say that God is love? It means something and not something else. We have to do the work to know that. But if that's where you stop, you have just wasted a lot of your time. Because our purpose in chopping, chopping, chopping the firewood, in understanding, in reading the scriptures, journaling, praying, meditating, reading good books, we're trying to know the data about God, not for its own sake, but for the fire, ultimately, of worship. It produces in us a ground, a basis for our Worship. If you try to worship an unknown God like the Athenians, it's useless. You don't have any fuel there. If you've ever tried to pray and it's just uh, blank, empty, you got nothing to say, you're just cold, okay. You're not thinking rich, deep thoughts about God. It's really hard. But if you get that data, if you do the hard work and you know true things about God and God sends the spark, and there's a blaze of worship. And you've probably experienced that in your life. So when we talk about studying the attributes of God, it's not for its own sake. If you do it for its own sake, to look smart in conversations because the people around you expect you to know what omniscience means or whatever, it's going to be a waste. And the only benefits you'll accrue are maybe arrogance <laughs> or greater judgment. I don't know. It's not going to be good. That's why this class is not just God, but this class is God and Wednesday, because the knowledge of God is meant to light on fire in your life, producing worship and a completely changed life on Wednesday. So your attitudes. Probably several of you have read, in my opinion, the best book on this subject, which is J.I. Packer's book called Knowing God. It was a very powerful, influential book, especially in the 2000s. I'm not sure when it was written before then. But if you've read that book, then you know that in the, I think it's the second chapter, he quotes Daniel 11, verse 32, which says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And then he goes through in that chapter and explains that if you're among those people who know their God, truly know him, not just data, but deeply, then this is what happens, four things. You have great energy for God. You have great thoughts of God. You have great boldness for God. And you have great contentment in God. Those are four Wednesday items. And he argues rightly, just on the basis of Daniel 11.32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That means your Wednesday changes. Here's how he concludes that section in Knowing God in chapter 2. He says, first, we need to recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. You might have a lot of the data, but he's talking about knowledge of the heart, worship. We must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray. And what goes on in our hearts? Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. That is the attitude we want to begin this class with. 
a true, real sense that there is so much to know about God and so much of it we don't know yet. Really, the one prerequisite for you, if you want to move from just data of knowing about God into this fire of worship that changes your life on Wednesday, it is this. It is genuine humility. Scripture says multiple times that God opposes the proud. If you come to a study of God's attributes with a pride, a desire to look better than other people or what have you, it says God himself will actively oppose you. You don't want that. I promise you don't want that. But he gives grace to the humble. In this case, the grace for your life to be changed on Wednesday requires a genuine, a sincere humility. That's what Packer is arguing for. That's one more reason why, under attributes, I was trying to convince you that anything you know about God, it may be true, but it's not exhaustive. Think about the book of Job again, where you had Job and his friends who all thought they knew quite a bit about God. <laughs> and actually, all of them were wrong. Job was the least wrong, but they were all wrong. And in the end, when God appears from a whirlwind and terrifies Job, who's been speaking, God, why are you perverting justice? And God appears in a whirlwind, terrifies Job, says, gird up your loins like a man. You thought you knew who I was. You had that pride to think you knew who I was. Now you be quiet and let me tell you who I am. And you've seen those chapter after chapter where God is saying, can you do this? Can you grab the Leviathan and do whatever you want with him? You stretch the stars up there in the sky. Is that you? Do you remember Job's response? Did Job respond, no, 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 God, listen. Listen, I know you're rebuking me, but here, what I said about your justice, I understand biblically and theologically that this attribute of your justice, it has these multiple parts. There's retributive justice. There's remunerative justice. Like, I... That's not Job's response. <laughs> it's not his systems of theology. Job's response is this. God, I heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Job had to get to that place of humility by a powerful appearance of the Lord, and that's true for all of us in this study. If you want your knowledge of God to be more than just in your head. There has to be a powerful, don't misunderstand this, but I mean it, experience of God in your life so that the data is not just data. A powerful experience of God that produces in you, which it does in every rational creature that experiences God, the humility that is appropriate to a creature in front of its mighty creator. So even as we begin this class, I'd encourage you this coming week, here's your one piece of homework, that in your prayer, in your seeking after God, that you would ask him to reveal himself to you like Moses on the mountain, show me your glory, but you would ask him also to give you humility. Because if you walk in those doors these 13 weeks and you don't have humility with you, you can walk right back and you can go because <laughs> it's going to be a waste of all our time. So let's all for ourselves primarily pray for humility that would allow us to know not just data about God, but that that will change our attitudes, change who we are. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. Many of you know Tozer. He was a pastor for some 30 years in Chicago, actually. So he lived a busy life in that sense, but he's best known as a pastor who knew God and helped others do the same. We're hoping 
to have several copies of his book, The Pursuit of God, available at some point in the future in the foyer for you to buy at cost, just so those are available to you. But you can get it online. You can buy it wherever. It's an excellent book. Highly encourage it. He has one other book that's very popular called The Knowledge of the Holy, a life-changing book, actually, for me and for a lot of people. But he says in The Knowledge of the Holy, quote, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Tozer's good at making those big statements, but I think he's exactly right on this point. This means that what are you struggling with on Wednesday? It could be any range of things. Are you looking at pornography on Wednesday? Are you blowing up on your coworkers on Wednesday? Are you thinking critical, bitter thoughts about other believers on Wednesday? What are you struggling with? Tozer says, whatever else is going on in your life that's bringing that up in your heart, the essential thing is that you do not have a correct, meaningful knowledge of God. There is a fault in your true, deep understanding of God. And if that fault is corrected, it will result in overcoming sin. You believe that? You believe you can stop blowing up on your wife by having a truer, realer, worshipful knowledge of God? You might have to do some other things, get some practical homework, retrain your habits, whatever else, but this is, Tozer saying, the essence of it. The reason you're an angry person, the reason you worry all the time, is ultimately a lack in your knowledge of God. And if you grow in your knowledge of God, that's going to change for you on Wednesday. It doesn't matter how long you've struggled with the sin habits that you have. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. And it doesn't matter how heavy the pressure externally gets in your life. It might be really intense right now. It doesn't matter. If you have a true deep knowledge of God, you will, Daniel, stand firm and take action. Are you struggling with laziness? Have you reached a plateau in your Christian life on Wednesday where you just kind of chill and get by? You need to know God. Data on fire. That's what you need. If your knowledge of God is not changing your life on Wednesday, then you're missing it. You're not really deeply growing in your knowledge of God, hence the purpose of this class. So what is it for you? Are you sleeping on a rock right now? I don't know for each of you what the trial is. You may be having a dysfunctional family and you're on the run and you're in an uncomfortable part of your life right now and you're starting to see parts of your heart that you never thought were there and there they are. And it's frustrating and you've tried everything in the book, you've read, read every book and you're trying to know how do I overcome this? You need, like Jacob had, a vision of God, not literally in a dream, okay? Don't misunderstand. You need, through the scriptures, a truer, deeper, worshipful knowledge of the attributes of God. That will change your life. The goal by the end of this class is that wherever you are on Wednesday afternoon, drinking your coffee, trying to overcome that fatigue that sets in, wherever you are, that you'd be able to say, like Jacob, God is in this place. And 13 weeks ago, I didn't know it. 
and now I do. And you rename your cubicle Bethel. This is the house of God, and it changes your life. Let me, I guess we'll do questions first here. Let's, we've got a few minutes here as we wrap this up. If there are any questions, it's okay if there's not. I won't make it awkward, okay? But if you have any questions, then we'll address those briefly here, and then I'll pray, and we'll be done with this lesson. Does anyone have any questions? The Knowledge of the Holy. And actually, some of you may know Dr. Bruce Ware. He's written some books that are really helpful. Uh, my wife had one that she really appreciated, I think. But um, Dr. Bruce Ware is one of my favorite professors. I've never had him personally. I've listened to his lectures. He's over at Southern Seminary, but he tells a story in his own life when he was a young man. See, he's one of the most worshipful when it comes to the knowledge of God. But he tells a story when he went to college, he grew up in a Christian family, he went to college, had a pretty typical crisis of faith. Is God real? Is the God of Christianity true? He was so torn up about it, he spent an entire week fasting, no food for a whole week in college. Visits his family, they obviously notice something's wrong with him, they don't know what. And he's praying that whole week with fasting, God, if you're real, I need you to show me. He gets through about six days, almost to the seventh, and he said he was terrified. Nothing happened, you know? And he's like, what's going to happen if seven days go by and there's nothing? So he is in utter crisis mode, utterly devastated. He's with his family. I think it was maybe his brother-in-law was taking a class at a seminary somewhere, and assigned in that class was A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. And so his brother-in-law, or so he asked his brother-in-law, didn't tell him what he's doing, but he just asked him, like, have you read any good books on just who God is? And his brother-in-law said, we're actually reading this right now. So he got a copy, had a copy. He reads it, and that's what utterly transformed his life. That was the end of his crisis of faith. It took some time after that, but it utterly transformed his life, set the trajectory. So now Dr. Ware is one of the best uh, biblical scholars in the world, theological scholars in the world, and his emphasis really is a knowledge of God. So, all that to say, go get The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and let me just give you one small caveat. Tozer, I love Tozer a lot. He is wonderful. The one small caveat is um, he is Arminian. He is the least Arminian Arminian I ever encountered in my life. It's really, he's part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is Arminian in its outlook. So he was technically Arminian. So in the knowledge of the holy, the whole book's fantastic. The one chapter on the sovereignty of God, you could just skip over that one. <laughs> you just skip that one over. It's really, everything else he says, you're like, this guy is so firm on God's sovereignty, except when he talks about God's sovereignty and you're like, what are you talking about, man? So anyways, that'd be my one caveat. But yes, knowledge of the holy is a good one. Free on Esword. Knowledge of the Holy, Pursuit of God, Free on Esword, um, and also I think other places, maybe a dollar on Kindle. I mean, you can get them. They're older books, so you can get those. Any last questions here? All right. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. Oh, God. We are not satisfied without knowing first true information about you. And you have 
yourself, by your own initiative, without any of our involvement whatsoever, taking the initiative to make the data, an abundance of data about yourself available to us. In nature, your invisible attributes are seen, your power, your divine nature. We see it in the sky. We'll see it when we walk outside. That's your initiative revealing things about yourself. But then so far beyond that, especially you've revealed in Scripture, every piece of information about yourself that you want us to have. And Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for how infrequently we make use of that resource. And when we do, maybe to deal with a crisis that's pressing and not always with the desire to know you, but I pray you would help us, Lord, to have a change of heart in this regard and to come to Scripture every day primarily hungering after you and a knowledge of what's true about you. Help us not to lean on our own understanding. Protect us from the currents of culture that invade our minds and try to sway us in what we think about you. Help us to stand on Scripture alone. I do pray too, Lord, that you would allow us to go beyond the data. Lord, send fire to prove yourself like you did on Mount Carmel for Elijah. And we are people of a like nature with him. And you sent fire upon an altar, even one soaked with water. Improbable that it would light on fire. And yet you did that by a mighty fire from heaven. And our plea, God, is that in our lives, which so often fall so short of that ideal that you would, as we consider you and meditate on true data about you, send a fire from heaven. I pray that you would give us both a sense of endurance when we don't experience you, but also a never-ending restlessness after a deeper knowledge of you, Lord, and then that you would satisfy us with yourself. I pray you do this in such a way that for every person here, who we are on Wednesday this week will differ in three months from now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.